So the uh, woman at uh, the doctor's, she had a ThinkPad, and I spent the whole time trying to look at what model of ThinkPad it was. <laughs> User error 81. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back, and we've got a bunch of hashtag ask error questions for you. And remember, you can submit them on Twitter or in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group. Just use that hashtag ask error. So the first one, what is likely to knock YouTube off its iron throne? I think it depends what you mean by that person who asked the question. Do you mean what platform is likely to overtake YouTube, or do you mean what is likely to kill YouTube? If it's the latter, then it's clearly... The, the terrible appeals process, um, the advert apocalypse or whatever, it, it seems pretty clear what is dragging YouTube down, but is something going to replace it? Inevitably at some point, yes, but what will that be? Who knows? It seems like there's like a couple of big problems to solve if you want to take out YouTube, right? And one of them is that streaming video is hard and expensive. And so if you can somehow either have a crap load of money and infrastructure or find a way to circumvent the costs, like that's your first hurdle, right? And then like the next hurdle after that is monetization because it seems like everybody on YouTube is unhappy with monetization and like a lot of people have tacked on other monetization schemes like Patreon or um, advertisements like product advertisements of their own, not like Google advertisements. So it seems like monetizing is a big thing there, right? But like, is there anything right now that seems like it's poised to like take over? I, I don't think so. Well, the only possible thing that could take over is a number of smaller services or websites or whatever platforms because you've got things like PeerTube, but that suffers from the network effect problem. There just aren't enough people on there. You know that any video that you could possibly want to watch is going to be on YouTube, if it's freely available, that is. Whereas on these other services, especially decentralized stuff like PeerTube, you're kind of chasing all over. And if it's something, some specific type of content like Linux content or whatever, then maybe you'll find the right PeerTube instance for that. But it feels like a centralized competitor to YouTube is just not happening, really. I mean, that's something that's actually kind of interesting to think about is that maybe um, it would be better to have like a federated set of, of video streaming services that all cater to different audiences. And then what would really be like the killer would be the app experience of whatever this like federated platform universe is. But that's another hard thing is it seems like YouTube like comes with every platform, right? Like every smart TV you have is going to have YouTube. Like it's on your phone, it's on a tablet, you can do it on your computer. And, but like, how do I access PeerTube on my TV? Like, I don't even know if I can do that. Well, yeah, that's why we put the podcast on YouTube. Because YouTube is available on every possible device that you can think of, even the, even the you know the Pine phone or whatever, you're going to be able to watch YouTube through the browser. There's always a way to watch YouTube. I think we're missing the fact that we're all uh, Western white dudes who don't realize that there are things outside of our 
realm. And I think you're thinking of replacing YouTube with some upstart open source federated bullshit when actually what's going to replace it is another gigantic company. And the only place where there are bigger companies than those ones in America is China. And so the companies and the products that are going to replace YouTube are Chinese video platforms. So Douyin in China, which is TikTok outside of China, is massive. It's got more installs than Facebook and YouTube combined. Wow. So it's, I think what's more likely is that they become more popular. I recently installed TikTok to have a look at it and it's relentless. There's a constant stream of short clips. It's very easy to submit. It's very difficult to get kicked off the platform. It's super easy to engage with the creators and it's very easy for them to crank out new content for people who follow them way easier than it is on YouTube. They can do it directly on their mobile device. Yes, but it serves a different need. It's something new. It's not like YouTubers. You're not going to have a half-hour documentary about synths or ThinkPads on there. There's no reason why they couldn't encroach into other markets. They've already got the audience. They've already got tons of creators. And it's not just them. That's only one of them. Tencent have their own video platform. There's tons of them. Yuku, the, which is arguably the Chinese equivalent to YouTube. Um, they're, they're all massive. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by looking at the, the little upstarts in Western culture when there are already these behemoths that have millions, if not a billion plus users in the Far East. And they will come knocking. And already, like if I scroll through TikTok, it's all Westerners using it. So I'm looking at people who are in my region who are using this product. And you know what youngsters are like these days. They have the attention span of a gnat. And it's very easy to watch a 10-second TikTok and press plus and leave a little comment and then swipe up to the next one and not get involved in lengthy three-hour Maybe maybe those videos about ThinkPads and podcasts and shit like that will go to the peer tubes of this world and all the stuff that the young people, like below the age of 30, probably below the age of 20, almost certainly below the age of like 15, will be watching, will all be on TikTok and the like. Right, but TikTok is a good example of this because they had to rebrand it before it became popular in the West because there's this huge cultural gulf between the West and the East. And so are you saying that that cultural gulf is likely to somehow be closed? It was already super popular. Before TikTok bought it, it was musically. People made little video clips that had music in the background and it had super simple editing tools they could uh cut and shut two little things together that made it look like you know some magical effect had happened right hang on you say people you mean children were using this well yeah it doesn't matter who like musically was used by a lot of people who either were children or appealed to children and tiktok paid ridiculous amount of money for Musical.ly and rebranded the whole thing TikTok. So 
Yeah, I, it may be. Um, there's going to be some Western friendly branded thing, but I don't think that's a blocker. Like the fact that everyone who has a child I know probably has TikTok. I guess there's a kind of a question, right? Of like, what, what do we mean by success then? Do we just mean like raw user numbers or do we mean like adoption across a wide set of demographics? Cause I guess like that's where mine, mine jumps to is like, oh, people young and old and who watch really short videos and long videos and animations or only people or whatever. It seems like YouTube has like this really wide, like demographic range. Um, and, and something like TikTok, at least to my perception, it seems to appeal to like a very niche demographic. Yeah, to some degree. Uh, I, I'm sure lots of people use YouTube, but I, what I'm getting at is I don't think it's unreasonable for something else to come in and stomp all over it. What I'm getting at is I don't think you should look for the little upstart open source peer tube like things. I think you should look at the behemoths who will just come in and trample all over it. Is it really open source software if it's not developed collaboratively? Prime example would be Android thrown over the wall. Who gets to decide what is open source and what isn't? Are we talking OSI approved licenses or FSF approved distribution? And like, who gets to decide? It depends who you ask. Like, I would say, so long as I can see the source code, that's open source. I may not be able to build the source. I may not be able to redistribute the source. But if I can see it, that's way better than proprietary. Oh, well, that's interesting. So you're saying that it doesn't even have to be a proper open source license and you're happy? Well, it depends on the project. Like, If it's something that I really want to contribute to and I would like to submit a fix and um, and if they're the kind of people who don't uh, take fixes from randos uh, like, you know, like Chromium or WebKit or Android where it's notionally quite hard to get involved in the project and throw a patch at them, then... I might be annoyed, but if all I want to do is look at the source code and be aware of how it works and learn from it, then yeah, sure, it's open source. If I think about, for me, what is important for something to be open source, like I'm more interested in the ability to submit changes. And so if it's something where it's like, well, you know, you can see all the source code and like, even if you can redistribute it and modify your own versions or whatever, but there's no path for me to submit changes back, that just doesn't feel like open source to me. And, and that's, I think, the most important part to me is like the ability to get involved. We're talking about the spirit of open source rather than the letter of the license. Right. What about you, Joe? I think that ultimately the license is the most important because that gives you the freedom to do what you want with it, whether it is study it or make changes and redistribute it. I think that Android and the likes of that do count as open source because it is under the, the correct license, but I think it's far better if it's developed collaboratively. Although better in what way Be better in a kind of community way but i think do you get better software if it's just developed internally and then dumped maybe i'm a bit on the fence about this one i'm afraid well 
it depends what your definition of developed collaboratively is. Like a whole bunch of people could be working on it who are approved contributors who have gone through some, like they're all, for most projects, you've gone through some kind of dance to be able to contribute. And that might just be joining the project on GitHub, or it might be as far as meeting the individuals in person. Like there are some projects where they actually want to physically meet you before they allow you to have commit access to the project. And we've got people at Canonical who would like to contribute to certain projects and we're going to have to sponsor them to go to events and fly across the world in order to press the flesh with a project in order to meet them and then get, you know, approved by whoever the management team of that, that project is. So I think it, it depends what, what level of, hoops you have to jump through in order to become a contributor and be collaborative and some projects are different from others some it's very easy to contribute you just fork it um and i and i've had this i i i've said many times i don't consider myself a developer but i can fork a project on github do a contribution push it do a pull request and it alarms me that the next morning my pull request is merged and I think, wow, I'm a developer. I, I've made a change to something that, that has made it better in some small measurable way. Whereas others, you have to jump through a lot more uh, barriers. You know, what's really interesting is that it seems like people in the tech industry are always talking about how like they're working so hard on like diversity and inclusion and then for them to not be collaboratively developed is kind of like, that seems like that's a really easy way to be more inclusive, right? Like when somebody submits a pull request or files an issue report, even I don't really know or care like what their gender is or what their ethnicity is or anything like that. Um, so it just seems kind of like if you really want diverse contributions and outlooks and like, that's what, we kind of talk about, about like diversity, improving design, right. Is like, Oh, we get people that are, have different use cases or different worldviews involved and they can tell us and, you know, give us a feedback or whatever, or participate in the development process. And like, if you're not developing collaboratively, you really lose that like free ability to interact with people that are way different than you. Well, that's true. And clearly, diversity of people is good because of all the reasons you mentioned. But diversity of quality is not good. And if you have a throw-over-the-wall approach or a set number of developers, then you can guarantee the quality is going to be high. And so that's the kind of argument against just letting any Tom, Dick, and Harry contribute. I would so totally disagree with that because I feel like when people are like pre-vetted to be in like an organization that often like their internal policies, they don't really necessarily do code reviews or paired programming or like have any kind of standards because they just assume like if you get hired, you know what you're doing. And then the people just push to master. Whereas if you're working in a collaborative context, then you do have to have like CI in place and code review processes and code style guides. And like it actually enforces a lot more process to make sure that the quality is high. If you're having to take contributions from like anyone could submit a pull request, like, okay, now we need to like codify like what's a good pull request look like. Yeah. And I, I would disagree that just because you're on the payroll doesn't mean you're better than someone external who might have written extensive research papers on the topic and 
therefore actually have some clue about the topic that they're contributing patches or giving even just guidance. They might not even be contributing code, but they might be offering ways in which your algorithm could be improved. It could be something as simple as being able to detect different skin tones in a webcam application to get the the lighting correct or you know autofocus to work better or anything you know someone outside your organization which might all be based in one geographic part of the world and so all your developers who work for the company are all from that location someone outside that bubble could have valuable insight so no I, I definitely don't agree that just because you're a closed set of developers working on open source code makes you better at doing that than someone outside. Fair enough. How many people contribute to elementary OS, Dan? And, and of them, how many are kind of drive-by committers or infrequent? So that's really tough because we have like over 100 repos and the contributions to them like vary pretty greatly in size. And um, if you're including translators, then it's like hundreds, right? But if you're not including translators, I think it's still pretty likely that one repo has been touched by like 50 developers maybe over its lifetime. And like during a given week, I'd say we probably have active between like 20 and 30 developers. And actually like on payroll for the company, we have two people full-time and then we do um, like some contracts and then um, we have like bounties here and there and stuff like that. But it, it's like the vast majority of the like developing muscle is volunteer contributions from all over the world. Right. And do you ever have to deal with poor quality code then? Yeah. That's why we have like a code review process and we try to look at it from not a perspective of um, rejecting a, a pull request, but um, like how can it be improved? And uh, I think like the code review process is actually really interesting because that's where like tons of mentorship can happen and that's where people learn things and we all get more familiar with the code base, but it's also where we can like share knowledge. Like the other day, somebody submitted a pull request for um, how to do like a certain thing, something to do with like um, smooth scrolling or something. And they submitted this pull request to one project and I reviewed it and I was like, whoa, like I was just touching code in another project that does this thing in a way less elegant way. So now because I've done this pull request review, I can go back and submit a pull request for some other code to make it even better. Yeah, I've seen the same. I've, I've, written some code to simplify something and I thought I did it in an elegant way and then I, I look at somebody else's merge proposal for some completely unrelated project but happens to also be open source and I learn from that so there is that um as part of the process via osmosis you learn just by reading other people's codes and reading other people's commits that that gets you you know, improving as a developer without you actually writing a line of code, just reading other people's code is, is a good way to learn. But does it not add overhead, administrative overhead? Yeah, sure. And that's a good thing. You don't want like random drive-by crap landing in your repository that is potentially going to make your software less secure or less reliable, less robust or look like shit. You want something that adheres to your standards. Otherwise, you're going to either put your users at risk or make your software look crap when it's delivered. 
Well, exactly. But what if you don't have the resources for that administrative overhead? Then you end up with a project that's either insecure or looks like shit. Or you end up with just a fixed set of developers working on it. Right. But that doesn't negate what I said. Like, doesn't the, the number of developers who work on it uh, doesn't make something more secure or more pretty. The the process around how you develop the software is more going to help your software be secure and your software be beautiful than the number of developers who look at it. It's not the number of eyeballs. It's the process to make sure that you don't land insecure code or land fugly code in your software. It's not the number of eyeballs that makes that work. Honestly, I think one of the best things that you can do in a review process, too, is to put a junior developer in charge of doing reviews because they're going to learn the most by asking people like, okay, well, why did you do this? Or like, explain this thing to me. And it's not necessarily about like having someone really knowledgeable do a review. It's about making sure that the submitter knows what they're doing and they can justify why they've made certain changes. So in conclusion, then, the answer to the original question is it is open source software, even if it's not developed collaboratively, but it's better if it is developed collaboratively. It could be better. It depends. What's the one thing you wish you could do well, but are terrible at? Are we talking things you've tried that you have tried and realized you're terrible at, or things you think you're probably terrible at? because you haven't tried and you know you haven't learned and you haven't practiced either okay uh i'll go with anything musical but specifically singing and playing the piano i would love to be able to sing uh and i would love to be able to play the piano but i've never learned and i think i probably have a terrible singing voice but i never ever ever sing i did karaoke for a while in copenhagen while i worked out there i've never sung other than that, I've never sung anywhere ever. What about in the shower and stuff? No, I don't sing in the shower. I think in the shower. I think and sing in the shower. Ah. That's one thing I would really love to be able to do, but it's just, I'm such an introvert. I hate the idea of being on stage and singing and people being, ha ha. Um, but I'm fine standing on stage and talking about technology. That's fine. But I couldn't sing because I know I'd be terrible at it. If I, if I could, Maybe maybe that's one of the things to do in the new year is learn how to sing. But I would worry that my very first day going to singing lessons, they'd be like, oh, holy shit, you should give this up. This is not for you. And I'll be like, oh, okay. I think it's that's kind of a hard question to answer because the things that come to my mind are, aren't like necessarily like skills, but more like, um, oh, I wish that like I liked more kinds of food. But that's not really like a skill that you cultivate or anything. It's just like, ah, oh, my taste buds are shitty. What don't you like? We've I know we've talked about food. What is there a specific food that you like the look or smell of that you just don't like the taste of? Uh, I feel like a really big one actually is eggs because there's like so many different ways to cook eggs, and I just don't like eggs. I don't care for them, hmm. and it just seems like there's so many like great breakfast opportunities that I'm missing out on by not liking eggs. So I wish I was better at liking eggs. Yeah, you could be somewhere that serves them and they ask you how you want them and you just say, as they come, please. <laughs> now look, <laughs> everything was fine in the end and I got my eggs and they were delicious. So shut up. <laughs> but Fair enough. It's, that's, a, that's a strange one. I hadn't thought about being better at eating things 
would be a thing. Like, you know, you know me. I, I had, there is nothing I won't eat. Right. And so the whole concept of being better at eating things is absolutely alien to me. Okay. So another one that's actually like more of a choice, I guess, than just like a, my body is weird, but I, I wish I was better at like staying dedicated with exercise actually. And that's something I know I could do if I like put my mind to it and like really cared about it and like, you know, oh, hard work and, and whatever. But I, I just like lack the motivation or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I feel similar, but not enough to care about it. I, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for when I'm 50 and I go to the checkup at my uh, doctor and he says, dude, you got to lose weight or you're going to get diabetes. Like, and then I'll be like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and before that point, yeah, it's fine. I've got two of these. Uh, one that I've only just realized, and that is I wish I was better at cooking. I wish I could do that well, because I'm just fucking so bad at it. How, what, what, how does it manifest itself as bad? Like, do you burn water? I just, I'm not very creative with ingredients and stuff. And, and just every time I tried to make a pizza once, right, from the base, and I'd seen my wife do it and I thought, oh, I can do that, no problem. And I must have added too much water or not enough water and it just stuck everywhere. And I was trying to roll it out on this greaseproof paper. And in the end, I just got so mad. I just fucking just put it into a ball and chucked it in the bin and then just went and got a pizza from the pizza place. Were you following a recipe or was this like just making it up as you go along? I was following directions from my wife. Nah, you see, I have problems in that my wife can't cook and she's quite happy that I can. And if I ask her to cook something because I've got meetings and stuff that run on late, so I can't cook tea. I'll ask her to do it. And she will resist where possible. And often it will be just a ready-made food lobbed in the oven. And sometimes she'll go out of her way and it'll be, and I'm not, I'm not dissing her for this. Uh, just in case you're listening, Claire. Hello. I still love you. Um, uh, the, uh, like some, she'll make something like spaghetti bolognese, but that will be, mince in a pan, sauce lobbed over the top out of a jar, and then pasta in hot water. And that's very difficult to fuck up, you know, properly. Um, but I'll get a little bit twitchy about the fact that she doesn't do toast long enough. She gets really impatient and she won't cook anything long enough. And so toast is all soft and sloppy and pizzas don't have a crispy base because they haven't been in the oven long enough and stuff. And everything is just slightly undercooked because she's massively impatient when she's cooking. And I offer advice and that's the absolute worst thing I can do. If I say, this could have done with five more minutes or can I put this back in the oven? She'll freak and then vow never to cook again. And that's her personal character. But I would like it if she would learn to cook, but I actually really like doing it. So it's fine. So I, I, I empathize. I empathize because I live with someone who can't cook, but it's really following recipes. I, I found, um, there's a, a company, is it Gusto? that do like those recipe boxes where you get three recipes in a box and all the ingredients are the exact amount you need. So you get like a hundred mil of oil and you get 50 grams of sugar and stuff. You don't get a bag of sugar where you have to weigh it. Oh yeah. Get the right amount. All the right amounts are in there for an exact meal. And they're great because they get these little plastic laminated recipe cards and you just follow and it's got pictures on it and you could 
follow that and you would learn to cook a bunch of dishes if you just did those you'd be amazed how good the food turns out and it's freshly made from home yeah but i could just drive to the fried chicken place well yes yes you could the other one for me is art drawing painting i've tried many times i've never taken any instruction but i just i look at something and i try and draw it and i i did that once and showed it to my niece and she was literally doubled over laughing saying it looks like a five-year-old's done it so i will never ever be good at that i backed a project on kickstarter was um it was a how to draw comics book so it was like instructions on how to do faces bodies backgrounds all that kind of stuff how to do panels and stuff like that and it comes as like a notebook and you buy a bunch of pens and pencils and various artwork materials because i thought i'd like to draw so i'm like you i'm terrible artistically and i thought i'll i'll learn and i bought this thing and i've never placed a single pen or pencil on that book because i'm scared that it would look like shit the second i put a pencil in there even though it's got loads of room for practice and loads of room for trying stuff out i'm like i know the second i commit pencil to paper i'm gonna wreck it and it's gonna look like shit and after completing the course at the back, you'll get something that looks like the Elephant Man, and it's supposed to just look like Mike from uh, some cartoon character or something. It's I'm just not very good at drawing at all. I think it's really interesting stuff like drawing or cooking that I think when you don't know how to do it, that like you see it as kind of this mystical thing, and there must be like this creative quality or whatever, but... Like as you start to do it, you realize that it's, well, you got to get the right tools and know the techniques and follow the directions. And that's like all there is to it. There's really not that much creativity to it. And I think especially cooking, like it's all chemistry and like rules. And as long as you know the rules, then you can be creative or whatever, but it's all very confined. It's not like you can like add whatever you want and it's going to turn out good. And like, you got to know the rules. And then, and then once you know that the techniques and the rules, then it, and it works out. Well, you definitely wouldn't want to eat anything I'd ever cooked. Believe me, unless you like beans on toast. When we went to Og Camp in uh, Liverpool some years ago, myself, Martin, Mark and Laura shared a house in Airbnb and it was a somewhat competitive thing that we, because myself, Mark and Martin all quite like cooking. I'm sure Laura does as well. Um, and we all wanted to, you know, cook our own little thing, our own little signature dish each night. It was great fun. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And all I was doing was following instructions. You're right, Dan. It's not hard. It is just assembling the tools and the, you know, the disposable items, whether it be, you know, pencil, lead or ink or paint or vegetables and meat and potatoes or whatever, and just doing the thing that it says on the page. I don't know why that's so hard for singing. Why is singing any different than making food? I can make food. Why is it hard for me to, if I want to, if I want to learn to sing? That surely there's rules in that as well. Yeah, there must be, right? You just, you don't know the the secret rule that that people that can sing somehow understand it intuitively or have been taught it right i don't know though i think with singing there is an inherent ability to understand melody and stuff and i am a mediocre singer i would say 
in that I can carry a tune, uh, but I can't do the complicated stuff. I think that maybe if I practiced and had the right tuition, I could do more complex vocal stuff or whatever, but I'm just not really inclined to. I'm just too lazy. Whereas I know people who are literally tone deaf and just cannot reproduce a note. And I think that's different from cooking insofar as as long as you have basic hand-eye coordination and and good eyesight and you know dexterity and everything you can add ingredients and follow instructions but th- th- there's just something inherent about artistic endeavors like drawing and singing and musical ability rhythm and stuff that you have to have a baseline talent to develop the skill i don't know what's that quote about talent is just sustained practice or something like that i disagree with that I disagree. I think that talent is something that is inherent to you, whereas a skill is something that you can build up over time. And I was once told this story, um, you know, this this thought experiment, take the world's best football soccer player. Um, and if they had grown up having never played football, but I had grown up playing football every day, I'd be quite good and I'd be better than them. But then if they trained for a few months, they would just be immediately better than me after, well, immediately, maybe after two, three months because they just have that skill in them, whereas I'm not very skilled. I can kick a ball about, but I'm never going to win the World Cup. And you can apply that to other stuff as well. If someone like Pavarotti had never sung, and then later in his life someone taught him how to do it, he would almost certainly get incredible at it, because he was just, it was just his natural talent. I don't know. I have to think about that one. I don't know if I believe that. Well, I'm going to teach you to sing, Popey, and you can teach me to cook. What do you think? Okay, deal. <laughs> Dogs or cats? I'm going to have to resoundingly go with cats. Really? I thought you were a dog man. I feel like dogs are just too invested in everything. And they really care about stuff. And I need an animal companion that cares a lot less. Well, cats just care about themselves, don't they? That's the stereotype. Yeah, which is it's pretty nice because, you know, they'll come over and they'll hang out and like, lay next to you and you give them some pets or whatever. And it's like, oh, I have an animal. But then like when you come home and you got your hands full, they're like, well, they're not going to pet me with their hands full. So they leave you alone and you can put the groceries away. It's awesome. Yeah. Or they come and investigate the groceries when you put them down or whatever and somewhat get in the way. But yeah, dogs are a bit much, aren't they? I think the reason that I like cats is that um, dogs, they kind of respect you too much and i don't like that somehow like dogs want to be dominated by you and want to be lower in the hierarchy whereas cats are happy to be well either above you or equal to you aren't you somewhat anthropomorphizing these animals who are pets Uh, no (laughs) whatever could you mean (laughs) uh I'm kind of surprised, Dan, that you're not a dog person i really thought you would be i thought you'd be like micro dog kind of person <laughs> you design a dog yeah no no not at all what if i want to go outside what if i want to do something you know and it's like oh well the dog needs to be pottied every four hours or whatever you know and like I, I gotta live my own life you know and a cat can just live its own life and we're like roommates and i'm like a child do you have a cat then i do not have a cat currently but i am looking into getting a cat soon Uh huh. well make sure you get a rescue one Yes, of course. I know your answer, Bobby. You're very much a cat man, right? Well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? Because for the last 20 years, I've had five cats. So you would think that. But 
your initial question was dogs or cats and my answer would be why not both uh so i i like my own cats and other people's cats but i like other people's dogs like if i go and visit like if i'm dropping sam off at a friend's house and they've got a dog I will pay zero attention to the parents of uh, the child who Sam is being dropped off at. But when the dog comes to the door, I'll be like, oh, hello, and like stroke them and have fun with the other person's dog. And then when I leave, I'll have completely forgotten the arrangements for when I'm picking Sam up again because I'm too focused on their dog. So, yeah, I am. Yes, I'm a cat person, my own cat, but other people's dogs. I love cat. I love dogs. Okay, yeah, that's interesting because I have friends that have a long-haired chihuahua and when I go over there, like, me and him are buds and he comes and hangs out, but, like, I don't have to feed him or take him on walks or anything. So I can just, like, say goodbye and see him when I see him, you know? Yeah. My brother went out for a meal recently and uh, he asked me to babysit his dogs. So I'm like, yeah, sure. Just go over to his house, sit and watch stuff on his gigantic TV, turn the music up loud and have the dogs sit next to me on the sofa. It's brilliant. All I have to do is let them go outside for a piss and a shit now and then and they come back in and sit next to me. It's great. Very much like being an uncle. Yes, it's like feeding them full of sweets and then walking away. <laughs> yeah. Like, or, yeah, stick a five-pound note in the hand and walk away. But, yeah, it's very much like that. I, I Other people's dogs. So sometimes I have to walk my brother's dogs. They're... um whippets so they're very very fast and when he goes on holiday he asks me to walk them and so i load them into the back of my car and drive them to the nearest park and then they're like jumping up at me to throw a ball and then they go off like rockets into the distance and the thing i'm okay with is all of that bit the thing i'm really not okay with is picking up their shit afterwards i can't deal with that i just wretch (laughs) and want to puke every single time it is so gross. And no matter, no matter how thick of like doggy bags you get, you can still just like feel it. Ugh. Oh, no. <laughs> and on one occasion we took, uh, his, his dogs are called Larry and Pickle. And Larry's a bit older and he's a bit big lumbering whip it, not as fast and Pickle's super fast and tiny. And I went with my son, Sam, to walk the dogs one time and we're walking through this big park. And Larry had obviously eaten something that disagreed with him. And it came out the other end as, I think, I don't know if it was grass or string or straw, but it came out as like he was hobbling along and this long string of shit came out of his ass and it carried on dangling while he was walking around. And I I looked at him and it looked like he had two tails because he had like these two (laughs) things dangling out. And I looked across at Sam and it was a real bonding moment when he looked at me and we had this look of horror on each other's faces thinking, oh shit, what are we going to do about that? (laughs) And thankfully it came off, it broke off, but Larry Two Tails is what we call him now. (laughs) 